Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Thanks, everybody, for real, for um, hanging with us, for answering texts and seeing Realm posts and Facebook posts and trying to get the word out. Uh, the weather is flip-flop back and forth on us, and we're thankful to have a way to still connect and, um, and to gather in a strange way. I um, want to say thank you to many people. I was expecting to see everyone today so I could kind of thank everyone, um, but this morning I'll just do a special thanks to uh, the guys that came in to help out today. Of course, Matt, Caleb did this, Kimberly came in, uh, Ben Wilson's here, Townsend and Michelle came in to be ready for music, so Nathan jumped in. A lot of people I know, thank you guys so much for your work and loving us in the body this way. Uh, I also want to say thank you for the consideration of me as a pastor to allow and encourage the rest of the elders to preach. Last four weeks, I want to thank the elders for their good work in the word to preach well for us through Isaiah. Um, I don't know if we understand what a blessing it is to have qualified men who can preach the gospel, who can open God's word and give it to us as those that really can divide the word of truth and apply it to our hearts. So we're, we're thankful that is Christ's gifts and we, and we, and we trust and that he is using it and we're, we're thankful for that. Uh, I also want to say thankful, I uh, thank you. I don't know if any of the kids are sitting around the television right now. But my goodness, you kids are doing a wonderful job of learning to both sit still and wait through the sermon. Some are coming and talking to me about different things they're learning, um, and that's wonderful. Even if it's just a few things, that is a good gift that you guys are receiving, learning how to do that. And it's a gift for the rest of the body as we sit underneath the word together. So thank you kids for paying attention and doing a good job as well. I'm thankful also for the ability to gather. It is just heightened again this morning that... Uh, we remember that gathering itself is a good gift from God, and uh, it, we, we, we lack something when we don't get to do that on a regular basis. I also just want to say thank you. A couple different people have talked to me uh, that they're praying for the elders and for the church. Continue to do that. I want to thank God for his work in each of you, uh, for your love for Christ and for your, your faith in him and your love for the saints. All right, we are back to Ephesians. Strangely, though, I want to read one verse to start from James 1. I think it'll be appropriate for us as we enter. James 1.22, then we'll pray and we'll get going. James 1.22 says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to the scriptures, we want to hear from you. Lord, we come boldly to your throne based on the work of Jesus Christ, your precious son. Hallowed be your name. May every person to the ends of the earth, both here in Hampton Roads, throughout the continent, and across the world know the name of Jesus Christ that might be praised, God. Lord, we are weak and uh, problematic people. This morning shows us how fickle things are and how difficult it is for us to respond in our own weaknesses the weather is so much stronger and you are so much greater and your plans are better than all of ours. And we trust you, God. We're also sinful, rebellious people. 
regularly tempted to return to our formal lifestyles, our former ways of thinking and our actions, to give in to what makes us feel good for the here and now. But we know, Lord, that you have graciously called us into the light, exposing the emptiness of our old living and showing us what we cannot see with our physical eyes through eyes of faith. God, would you do a work this morning in us that I cannot do, that each of us cannot do if we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We bow to your will, God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I think the only version of The Prince and the Pauper that I've actually ever seen was like the Mickey Mouse version of it, um, which was great, by the way. You, could, you can catch it sometime. Um, but as I've read Cliff's notes and heard a couple different analysis and uh, summaries of The Prince and the Pauper, Mark Twain's famous novel, I start to understand some, some depth to it, both the, the comedy that it is, but also the true life lessons that it teaches us. If you're familiar at all with Prince and the Pauper, it's a, a story about um, the prince in the land and a, a, just a poor beggar boy who comes from a very poor family. And somehow they come together and they switch spots. They must look just enough alike that they are to switch spots and no one will ever know. So, of course, the pauper, the, the poor boy, goes to the palace, and, and, the, and the prince, uh, he gets on these rags, these ragtag clothes, and goes out and experiences freedom as a, as a poor child. Um, in the story, though, uh, as good as the story is and what Mark Twain is trying to say, I think there's something that we can learn from. It's kind of, again, comedic that when this poor child goes in to be a prince, he puts on all the clothes, he gets his hair right, and he gets all put together so that he looks the part of a prince. But as time goes by, the prince, or actually who's the pauper, starts doing things the way that he always knows how to do them because he doesn't actually know how to be a prince. He is not actually a prince. He's going along with this plan, trying to fit in as best as he can, but when the, the small bowl for the purifying of hands comes to him at the table, instead of, you know, actually cleaning off his hands, he takes the whole bowl and he drinks it down. He does not know how to act in the house of the king. So at this point, the royal court, all the different people that are here, they think he has gone mad. He is not himself. He is not acting the way that he is supposed to act as a prince. So they think that they need to reform this child and bring him back and maybe he'll come back around and he'll be fine after he goes through this bout of madness where he really kind of forgets his identity. Now, I won't go to the end of the story and that's not necessarily important for us, but what's happening in that idea is relevant for us today as we enter this text. Paul is going to talk about something very much the same that we experience when we watch this pauper, this beggar boy, go into the palace and he puts on the king's or the prince's clothes and becomes a different person, but truthfully, he ends up acting like his old self. I think oftentimes we think that that's our story as far as being Christians. We think that we are actually paupers, or beggars, or uh, destitute, disgusting people who've been put princely clothes on top of us, but that we're not really much different, that we're trying to kind of fit into those clothes as much as we can. Paul's going to show us today that we are not paupers. We actually now, by the grace of God, have become princes. Our identity has completely changed. We are not faking it. There has been something real that has happened, and therefore we must act according to who we are. 
Here in this text, Ephesians 4, so if you've got your Bibles, look at Ephesians 4. Uh, we've turned the corner from the first three chapters of showing us really who we are and what God is doing in the universe to chapter 4, he's starting to turn and show us as a congregation and as Christians what we ought to be acting like. He's told us who you are. Now he's telling us, go be who you are. He's writing to believers to tell them that as Christians, their choices, their lifestyle, their loves, and their commitments, everything that they do must change. Why? Because their identity has changed. They're no longer the same people that they once were. These people who went from being dead have been made alive. That's Ephesians 2.5. They who were darkened, not able to see, have had now their eyes enlightened, Ephesians 1.18. In short, they have been transformed into a new creation. And we know that language from 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are a new creation in Christ. We are created in Christ Jesus, we know this, as four good works. We learn that in Ephesians 2.10. In other words, we are not just paupers, like playing the role. No, we have actually been changed. We're not the same people that we once were. Our identity has changed. And in light of this truth, he now speaks specifically to the Ephesians' contact, like their conduct, what they do, how they walk. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now let's break it down for a minute. Paul isn't messing around here. He, he needs them to know that what he is about to say is not good advice. This isn't like some, some thoughts from Paul as to what they should be doing. And they can kind of take it or leave it whether or not they should do it. No, he says that these are the words that have authority from the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the King. He says, this I say and testify in the Lord. As you can imagine, we, we just actually talked about the gifts that Christ gave in the apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and shepherds. That we ought to listen, of course, to Paul, but now he strengthens this, undergirding it, showing that this I testify in the Lord God himself. So we understand that he's saying this with true authority, and he says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, kids, if you're listening, or if you're not, listen for a minute. I want to ask you a question here. We talk about this. He says, you know, um, what is he talking about? You don't need to answer me out loud, but if you want to answer your parents, that's fine. He says uh, these people are to stop walking like the Gentiles walk. Now, does he mean that the Gentiles have some weird way of they put their feet and they do some kind of a weird walk that, that makes everyone else do the same walk and that these people should stop walking that way and they should have just a calmer, regular pace to their, to their walking? And that would be really silly if that's what he's trying to do. But I don't think that what he's trying to get to here. What does he mean that you must not walk like the Gentiles walk? I don't think it has anything really to do with the way that their, their feet and their legs work together at all. Paul is using this word, walk, to talk about the way that a person lives their life, the way that they act. He's talking about the way a person acts in his house or at his friend's house or the way that he goes to the store or however he goes through life walking, that's the way that he is referring to the way and say, you can't do that the same way that the Gentiles do. He is talking about the way a person walks through 
life. When Paul says you should stop walking like the Gentiles do, he is saying that you shouldn't act like these people act. Now, but who are these people? Who are these Gentiles, ones who walk in the futility of their minds? The question should come to us because Paul's already talked a lot about Jews and Gentiles. And aren't these people Christian Gentiles? Aren't they Gentiles? Well, yeah, the answer is yes, they are. Paul just went to great lengths to show that Jews and Gentiles, two distinct people groups, are now made one in Christ. The people he is talking to are Gentiles, but he isn't referring to their nationality or the fact that they aren't Jewish. He is referring mainly to Gentile lifestyle or behavior. In our context, it would probably be fair to say and right for us to say you must no longer walk as pagans do, as those who totally disregard God, don't believe him at all, or at least don't listen to his word at all. He's talking about who we are. For the most part, uh, you know, how this is different from what we would be when we met Christ. Remember, these people, un unless they have become Jewish, were aliens. Remember all the ways that he describes them. They're aliens, far off, strangers, without hope, no covenants of promise. They are without God in the world. They are defined as Gentiles who walk then in the futility of their mind. Paul points out that this way of life for the Gentiles is going nowhere. Like it's purposeless, like it's futile, it's empty, it will lead to nowhere good at all. They walk in the futility of their minds. These people are living in such a way that they, think about this, they're doing the best that they can with what they know is true in their minds, and they're trying to live according to that. Now, they may dabble in other things in there, but at the end of the day, they're like, okay, what I can sense and understand, I need to live according to those truths. Whatever my mind tells me is true, and others collectively tell me this is true, I'll live according to that. They live and act according to what their own mind tells them is true. But in the end, that reality is futile. It's empty. It's, it's pointless. Now, make sure you hear me clearly, everybody. This is not to say that unbelievers or pagans or Gentiles are stupid people. Not at all. It does not mean that they aren't smart or witty or clever or hardworking or industrious people. Paul is not talking about intellect only here. He is talking about intellect that has rejected God as Lord. And as such, it operates in a system of deception, falsehood, non-reality. It operates according to a different set of truths completely. The ones that they can see with their natural eyes understand with their ears and think about with their minds. In other words, unbelievers are living, pagans, Gentiles are living in darkness. Take a look at the next verse, verse 18. It says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now let's stop there for a minute. Paul describes these people as ones who truly cannot perceive the true state of the universe as it actually is. They can't see it. They don't understand it. And they certainly don't believe that God is the one who created and runs this entire thing. 
They can see with their eyes. They can think with their brains. They can gather all kinds of scientific research, historical data, philosophies of life, but still they are darkened in their understanding. They do not understand the most important things in life. Now, the book of Proverbs helps us a great deal when we come to try to understand what does the Bible mean when it says understanding? What, what is it talking about? Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding or insight. Proverbs 2.6 says, for the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. In this light, those that reject God do not have true understanding. A person can do tremendous work in science, they can assimilate history, they can practice medicine or law, uh, they can do all kinds of brilliant intellectual work, and still they never will have a true understanding if they have rejected God. In what matters the most, in like the foundational truth that God is, they're ignorant. They don't get it. Paul says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. He is saying that Gentiles who do not live under the authority and grace of God are culpable for their position. Their ignorance and their darkened mind is due to their own sin and their own rebellion against God. I mean, this, is, this, this reality is a very sad one. It points back to what we were prior to Jesus Christ. We've already covered this in Ephesians. Remember how Paul described, if you look in your Bibles back to chapter 2, or just remember, I'm going to read it, verses 1 through 3. Think about those things that we were. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Gentiles think that the world is what they can experience and see and understand. But through this prince of this world and through their active rebellion against God and believing what the prince tells them about that is true, they have actively said, I don't want God. I reject him. They think that they're, think about this, their fellow blind people that do not know God are more wise than the one who made them. And therefore, that wisdom is far more appealing. It seems provable. It seems better. It seems like that's what we should all actually listen to. It's way smarter for us to just go upon the, uh, the agreed upon wisdom of this age. They don't know God. They operate in a world that does not acknowledge him for who he is. And in this way, Paul calls them ignorant. Now, for us to say that is really offensive, right? For say, say that to someone. We, we, we would be very careful and nuance that statement if we called someone ignorant. Paul is not name-calling here. He's actually just describing reality. He's trying to shine the light and understand what's going on. Think about this. He is like a doctor giving a proper diagnosis for reality. He's the one that can apply the right medicine of the gospel for those that will listen and understand and trust Jesus Christ. And I'll admit, 
It's tempting for us all to think about this as though, oh, these poor Gentiles, you know, they're like blind people stumbling around, not knowing that they're even blind. Poor, ignorant victims. I mean, they are to be pitied. I think I would tend to agree with this assessment, but Paul explains that that's not the whole story. Paul shows us that these people aren't victims. They're actually the offenders. This is hard truth. Listen to verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, what does that mean, due to their hardness of heart? Well, first of all, that word heart is probably a helpful word that would help us understand mind or our inner person, where a person buckles down and either makes a decision to accept or reject God. We know that uh, this and other scriptures tell us all time, all people everywhere have rejected God and hardened their, their hearts against this God. I mean, that's exactly, let's not play games here. That's exactly what Romans 3 tells us. This hardening is something both that they have accomplished and done and are culpable for and something that they have been born into. In Adam, all have sinned and all have died. That's the truth that we find in Romans 5.12 and 1 Corinthians 15.22. Paul is describing how this state of rebellion then postures a person against the truth of God. And not just the truth or the belief that God is, but all of his ways, all of his laws, all the things that he says are true and how we ought to respond to them. The world that our father made works a certain way because he made it. He's the king. He made all the rules, not arbitrarily, but because they joined together in a symphony declaring the glory of God. And they are for the good of us, his image bearers. This really is then a downward path of evil. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Think about that. That is like almost the definition of hell. Alienated from the life of God. And now finally, they are given over to whatever things that they can perceive in their blindness. I mean, it's very much like Romans 1, 18 through 27. If you remember that, that's how Paul kicks off Romans, showing that there's nobody, there's nobody who has any excuse whatsoever. You probably remember it, but if not, I'm just going to read a few of the verses. Romans 1, 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God had revealed himself, but they rejected and dishonored God so that their hearts were darkened. Now, this is horrendous ingratitude to their maker, and God would not stand for it. He goes on in Romans 1, 24 and 25 and says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. This is starting to sound familiar. Impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is exactly what is going on when we get to verse 19. Look at it. He says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed to practice every kind of impurity. In Romans, it was God who gave them over to the lusts and impurity. But here, it's actually clearly the choice of the sinners to give themselves up to this kind of wicked behavior. And they have become, the text says, callous. Now, not only are they darkened in their understanding, not only do they have hardened hearts, 
but they have reached a point that they cannot and will not perceive any of the wickedness as wrong. They don't see it as a problem whatsoever. To them, they can't feel or understand or perceive that this is against God. They love to call wickedness good and enjoy every sensual thing that brings them temporary joy. And in the midst of it all, they have become so hard to the truths of God, they are senseless to it. Now, you watched me this morning play guitar. You saw that. And my left hand, if you were to come up and see it, or maybe if you know another guitar player, and see the ends of my fingers, these four fingers right here, or feel them, you realize they're, they're very hard and strange in one sense compared to the rest of the skin on my hand. If you've ever played guitar at all, you realize in those first, if you really can practice for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, the worst part is not not knowing. The worst part is how bad it hurts your fingers. These, these strings become like little knives on the ends of your fingers. And you think that they're, you kind of keep looking down to see if they're bleeding because it hurts so bad. But every guitar player that has been around long enough knows the longer that you work on it, the longer that you continue playing and putting that pressure, putting those cuts on there, you will develop a callus on the end of your fingers. To the point that once this thing develops, the skin is amazing. Once it has been hardened, once it becomes like this, in a sense, it's almost lifeless, senseless. When pressure and friction and movement are applied over and over again, there becomes a layer that does not feel anything. It gets so hard that you can't feel the pain of the string. And in this way, you can play for hours on end sometimes because you have this callus built up. This is the description that Paul uses of the Gentiles when they do not live according to the truth. They have become so hardened to God that they are senseless, easily rejecting everything that he says and any law that would make sense in a world where God is king. The result of such a position is all types of senseless, sinful behavior. I mean, it's reckless freedom to chase after everything good that their senses have to offer. I mean, this is what it means when he says, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, they aren't just being sensual and impure. The way Paul describes it shows that he, he, he puts it and says, they are greedy to get as much of this lifestyle as they can. It's not a third thing. He's actually kind of explaining how much they want to go after these sensual things. It's the mantra, get all that this life can give to you. Or we know it biblically as eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Get as much as of it you can. But now comes Paul's argument. Don't walk as these Gentiles walk in this purposeless debauchery. This is not who you are. You are not the pauper. You are the prince. You are Christians. You have had your eyes opened. You are not ignorant of truth, of the reality that is around you. You have received light. You have purpose, and as the Bible describes it, understanding. In other words, for you to live according to the knowledge and perception of your natural person, these natural pagan eyes, is not the way that you learned Christ. Look how he says this in verse 20 through 24. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's important that you realize this. Verse 20 all the way through 24 is one sentence, and it's all one related idea, so we must understand that. Let me start in verse 19 to show us the description of the Gentiles. 
They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness." Paul is saying that these believers, assuming that they truly are believers, and he kind of says that here, that these believers have been changed. He kind of puts it in this words, you've been educated. You know. You've had your eyes opened to the truth. You have learned Christ. At this point, I'm just asking, these are all Sunday school answers. Get ready. Who is the centerpiece of all history? Christ who is the embodiment of true wisdom. It's Christ. Paul, describing Christ in Colossians 2, 3, says this, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These believers have heard the message of the gospel. They have been trained in righteousness, and they are no longer ignorant of the truth. They know Christ. But this isn't just a knowledge issue. This is an identity change. Again, it's not just throwing on the, the prince's clothing, but you're still kind of the same person. This is not just going to the school of Christ to learn more facts about who God is. This is very important for us because <laughs> we can know a lot of stuff about God, but our Bible knowledge, our theology, it, it's, it's not for the purpose of doing better at Bible Jeopardy. It's, it's not. You know I'll just say this. You know who knows a lot about God already? You know who actually believes that God sent his son to die and did actually atone for sin? You know who believes that Jesus really did this kind of stuff? Demons. James tells us that they get it. They understand. Oh, they believe they would, they would probably crush us all at Bible Jeopardy. They get the story. They know. But yet, instead of joy, they tremble at the righteous wrath that will face them someday. We're not talking about learning more stuff about Christ. We're talking about conversion, salvation, going from darkness to light, the putting off of the old man, he describes it, the being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and the putting on of the new man. This happened at our conversion. And Romans 6 actually tells us, Caleb before just read the second part after this, but Romans 6 tells us that as we look back as a congregation, as a people who were redeemed by him, the congregation, the church, this publicly occurred at our baptism. If you go back and read Romans 6, 1 through 11, which I'd encourage you to do, you are going to see that Paul is saying that through the waters of baptism, we are shown a picture of what happened in reality spiritually happening behind the veil that we can't necessarily see. What we're seeing, the spiritual reality, is the dying of our old man, putting off, and the having our new life in Christ, the putting on. Listen to verse 4 for a moment. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul isn't telling us, I want to be clear here because it's, this is a little bit confusing. Paul isn't telling us, like with an imperative or exhorting us, to put off the old man and put on the new. 
that could, I, I understand that, and I think that's sometimes a nuance that we miss a little bit. He's not telling us to do that. That already happened in our conversion. If we are a believer, that already happened. But he is saying that we must no longer live as the pagans do. We ought to put to death those things that are wicked in us, our pagan actions. There's a kind of a parallel passage here in Colossians 3. It's a wonderful passage. I'm just going to read verses 9 and 10. It says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. A lifestyle of senseless, callous sin is opposite of what is true in Jesus. We've learned the truth. We have learned Christ. We are no longer to be deceived by the world around us. We're not to give in to what it says is true. He describes the old man, if you could look there at the end of that verse, former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires. But we have been changed. The Holy Spirit has opened our eyes and continues to renew uh, our minds by his power through the word of God. Uh, I'll make a quick side comment here. I don't think that you guys heard this yet, so hopefully I haven't overlapped too much. I'll do my best. Um, a quick side comment here for us to understand. In English, it's a little bit difficult to see this infinitive phrase is actually in the past tense, to put off the old man, to put on the new man. Uh, it has ongoing results, but this is something that actually happened in the past. Both the phrase be renewed in your oh, I'm sorry, but the phrase being renewed in your minds is actually a different tense. It's not past tense. That one's present, meaning that it's ongoing effects, and it continually shows this. One more thing I think that is helpful for you here, I'd point out that it's in the passive voice. In other words, the renewing of your mind is not done by you and me. He says, but be renewed, to be renewed in the, in, in, in the spirit of your minds. This is something not that we do, but something that is being done to us. Now, why do I bring those two things up? First of all, we need to understand that we can't renew our minds by our own strength or intellect or power at all. This is something that we, this is crazy, that we participate in, that we choose to do. And yet he's showing us that it is the power of the Holy Spirit who is renewing us in the spirit of our mind. It is our obedience and his work empowering us to obey, freeing us to obey and trust God alone. So this, this is the first thing. The trust here is not in ourselves. This is not a self-willed salvation and sanctification and growing, but rather his work. Second, though, you'll notice that if to put off and put on is in the past then, there's this ongoing work that the Spirit is doing. This is the grace that we are experiencing today by God's grace understanding that we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This is the grace that God is pouring upon us because of the riches of his glory. And as we get to the end of this paragraph, look at what he calls us. He says that we are, when we put on Christ, when we put on the new man, that we are ones who are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I'll just, I'll just step aside here. Does that look like anything to you? created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We get a glimpse here of the new man, the one who is created in the likeness of God. 
we already understand, although fallen, that we are made in the image of God. But here what we see in Christ is that we are created after the likeness of God that's not just a fallen man, but one that is righteous and holy, that of the truth. These are things that can only be done by God's work in us. And we, we glory in the fact that he has created us to be this type of a person. Now, we've, we've gone through the whole text. This, this transformation that you and I have undergone is not like what we saw in The Prince and the Pauper. It is real. The pauper rightly did his best to, to act like a prince, right? But he didn't know anything about being an actual prince. He wasn't actually one. He knew that his position and his true identity as a prince was a big sham because he wasn't one. He was a poor beggar that didn't know anything about being a prince. His bloodline wasn't royal. None of that. He wasn't a real prince. And again, sometimes, I think if we're really honest, we think that we are just like that pauper. That we've just put on these clothes and like that we're just trying to live up to that somehow. But Paul is here to tell you and me today that if we are Christians, if we love and trust Jesus Christ as our only king, that we are no longer a pauper. At the heart, we are a new person. It is not true that under this rich clothing and nice haircut that we're really just beggars looking to fake our way through this life, trying to keep up appearances as a prince. For you and I to continue on acting like blind, deaf, senseless beggars would be absolutely foolish. Something new has happened to us. Our real identity has changed in Christ. We're no longer pagans. We're Christians. Uh, we are not in the king's house under false pretense. We have been adopted. And Romans 8 tells us even further that we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Guys, we really are princes. I'm trying to be cute here. We are sons and daughters of the king. And this is Paul's whole point when he gets to the second half of our passage in Ephesians 4. If you truly are a Christian, then do you know who you are? You are new. You are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But Paul's point today isn't to make sure that we understand our identity. He's already been doing that for the past three chapters in the first book, part of Ephesians. His point here is to make sure that we understand that because our identity has gloriously changed, that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. We can't keep living like pagans. This type of living is foolish. It's darkened in its understanding. It shows ignorance of the truth. It is hardened to the point that it is callous to the consistent call of God and his loving counsel to live according to his word. It is possible, I'll just say this, for a time for Christian to be a Christian and yet to live like a non-Christian. That is possible for a time. But Paul is saying that if you and I are Christ's, then we cannot continue to live this way. That if you and I are Christ's, that you, we will hear this text, we will read this, and we will be cut to the heart. And we will realize that we must repent of our sin and stop living like pagans, but rather be living like those that know and understand the truth. And of course, when we would strive to trust him and to live in joyful obedience to the king, to our Lord, to the real God and Father of all, that we will joyfully 
be renewed in the spirit of our minds, remembering that, is, that this is really what's going on around us. Our eyes have been opened. Our senses have, in a sense, come alive. We can touch and feel and taste rightly. We can understand the bigger picture. By God's grace alone, we can perceive truth. We can know reality. And therefore, we can, as Christians, live by that reality. Brothers and sisters, I just want to ask you then, are you and I ever like these Ephesians, these people who are receiving this, this letter? Is it possible that you and I actually walk like pagans at times? Have you considered your actions, your speech, your securities, your desires, your fears, your hobbies, your ambitions, your motivations, your ambitions for what your children are to become? What about the way that you treat your money? Does that show that you understand the truth of who God is or that you can only perceive reality as far as your eyes and mind can perceive naturally? Is it possible that we actually walk like pagans and not like ones who know the truth? And we often look at this, this list of Gentile sins in 17 through 19 and think, hmm, that doesn't really characterize me. I'm certainly not one that struggles with the ignorance of God. I know about him. I don't really have a hard heart, you know, sensuality, every kind of impurity. That's not really me, I don't think. I just ask you, I mean, I'm serious. Are you sure? Are you sure that's true? Because Paul isn't just talking about knowing about God. He's talking about knowing him so intimately that you fear and obey and love him. You find your greatest joy in him. He's not talking about having a soft heart that just feels bad for people. He's talking about a heart that hears the word, is struck and repents and obeys and wants to hear more from God and knows that it brings joy to live according to him, operating in ultimate reality, not in the darkness and this false perception of what the wicked life of ignorance shows us. When he talks about sensuality and impurity, he is not only reprimanding those people who give in to major sexual sin, pornography and adultery and impure thoughts, etc. That's certainly included here, but we need to realize that he's talking about living in a way that trusts our senses and that that is the ultimate end. If we fill ourselves in those senses rather than trusting God, we will enjoy our time here. This is where we've got to stop and really ask ourselves if we are living like pagans. Pagans do not operate as though God is real or as if what he says in his word has any bearing on our real lives. They do only what they can understand with their senses. In that way, this is not talking about sexuality only. Well, that's certainly part of this. Paul is talking about giving themselves over to sensuality. Whatever security, whatever pleasure, whatever philosophy of life can be perceived and understood, that's what the Gentiles live by. Guys, are we the same? Do we fall into the exact same trap as though the reality of Jesus Christ and all that he's shown us might be true, we're not really quite sure, but I can see all this and understand it. And I can get this way of life, so I'll just kind of do it that way. Do we live in a manner that operates according to our senses and what they tell us? I do. I mean, this is, this is a knife to me. And when we walk by sight instead of by faith, we know what we're called to, 
to not only live by sight, but rather live by faith. We are not to live a sensual lifestyle, but to live in a manner that believes that the Bible is true and that all the wisdom and commands are the best way, most enjoyable, most fulfilling, most eternal way for us to live in ultimate reality, both now and for eternity. Now, the applications for today, I mean, we've already started working through, but they're extremely personal and they're numerous. In fact, I don't know if I could name them all because they're all tailored to you to your history, to your personality, to all the things that you perceive. All those different things are the things that you and I struggle with. And sometimes we don't even know that we struggle with it. The call today is to walk, not as the pagans do, but to walk as those who know and have learned Christ, as Christians. To walk as we have learned and continue to learn of Christ. The call for the Christians is not to put off the old man upon the new, Again, that's already happened. Romans 8, Paul doesn't tell us to put the old man to death. Sometimes we, I think, shorten it to say that. He tells us to put to death the deeds of the body. Only Christ on the cross could kill that old man. But what Paul is calling us to is the reality that we have to stop acting like that old man and act according to our new identity acting according to Christ. We are a new creation. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We saw this in, already in this, in this book. We're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20 that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, like what I'm doing right now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are most truly ourselves, who we were made to be when we live by faith in Christ. When we believe his word, when we love his person, when we rely on his grace, when we emulate his character, there is no better way for you and me to walk as a Christian than to love Jesus Christ with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how do we get this? By some strength of our own? By our own motivation alone? No. We draw near to Christ by hearing the word. This morning is a wonderful example, even this goofy way over live stream, of us seeing that God uses ordinary means for extraordinary purposes in spiritual growth for you and for me, continually building us up, renewing our minds. Are you listening to that then? Do you realize what, what's happening right now? That he is doing that to you? It's a process that is ongoing. It's not some magical seance or mystical experience that heightens our mindfulness. It is the Spirit's work to build us up in Christian maturity through the teaching of the Word of God. Now, friend, if you're watching today, maybe you go to church once in a while. You're not a part of a, a church necessarily, but you think you're a Christian, and maybe you are, uh, but you continue to walk as a Gentile. Uh, you, you keep acting like a pagan, and you don't really think that there's much of a problem with this as long as you trust that God is real and that Jesus is who he says he is. I want you to see that this passage implies two things. First, to the believer, that they would actually live according, not like the Gentiles, but to Christ. But second, there's another call for those who have not trusted Jesus Christ. And yet hear the words of Paul in verse 17 through 19 and realize, maybe for the first time, that this is a description of, of themselves, realizing that this could be true, that it's me, 
realizing that maybe it's I that who have been callous against the commands of God. Do, do you think that you have understanding, but you don't have to know God at all or obey him or know him or love him? These things aren't congruous. Are you living according to your own senses and refuse to listen and submit with joy to the king of the universe, to Jesus himself? Friend, I, I beg you to consider the call of Jesus Christ. Hear my plea as a friend and, a, and, and a, an image bearer. Would you listen to the call of Jesus Christ? Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ is the good news that there can be salvation from the wrath of God because of your and my sin through the person of Jesus Christ. He is good and a gracious king who saves, redeems, and sanctifies us to live as his kingdom subjects. I'd welcome you. This is a weird place to do it, but like call someone that's a part of Cornerstone Bible Church that knows Christ, or maybe it's children. Maybe you talk to your mom and dad and ask them about this, trusting Jesus Christ alone as your only Savior and hope and Lord. It's not just about knowing about Jesus. We're glad for you to know about Jesus. And we're glad that even this morning, Stephanie posts videos to teach our children about Christ. About Christ, though, is not the end. Learning about him will not save us. It is that which we can come underneath and say he is Lord and confess my wickedness against God himself. And I can only have salvation in him as king of my life. So I invite you to call, talk to us or call us, text us. Let's have that discussion. Christians, I just want to leave you with this. Do not allow these words from Paul to just skim over top of us. I go back to the beginning where I said from James 1.22, he says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Many of us have probably, at least for some time, sat underneath the preaching of the word and heard and heard and heard and heard it. And yet still we do not obey by trusting Christ and living according to learning Christ. So don't let these words miss you. This is God's grace to us to repent and believe and joyously live. He's brought us a good word today. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this imperfect medium to gather and to, and to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. We ask today that you would do the work that only you can do. We ask, Lord, that you would take these words these beautiful, powerful words of scripture that we've tried to go over together and seen, Lord, who you are and drive them deep down to our hearts that we may not live according to ourselves, according to the way the Gentile sees and perceives reality. But rather, Lord, as we have learned Christ, let us live in light of this thing. We are a new creation made, created in the likeness of God in true holiness and righteousness. We thank you for this great gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.